everyone. Welcome again to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location in Belmont, Massachusetts. My name is Brian. I pastor that location, and it's good to talk to you again. My guess is, if you're someone who believes in God, you believe that there's a God who created this world, then you're also someone who believes in miracles. You believe that the God who created this world can do the unusual and the impossible. So I bet you believe miracles exist, and I'd also be willing to guess that if miracles happen, you would love for a miracle to happen in your life. We might assume that if there's a God who can do miracles, that really whether or not miracles happen is all up to Him. But is that really the case? Is there a part that you and I play in creating the conditions for a miracle to occur? We'll talk about that today. So I hope you enjoy this. And I hope you listen closely because I believe that God has something that He'd like to say to you. Bible with you. I'd invite you to open it up to Joshua chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the seats in front of you, and the verses we're going to read are going to be on the screen. But if you're wondering where Joshua is, if you open up your Bible, maybe the table of contents, it's just a few books in. You see the Old Testament heading, and then you see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you get right to Joshua. So it's pretty quick in there, book number six. So if you're not sure where it is, you can open up your Bible to the table of contents and find Joshua, and we're going to be in chapter three in just a moment. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know we've been going through this book uh, together. And so we're really in Joshua chapter three at a pretty pivotal moment here, and we'll get there in just a bit. The Winter Olympics, as you know, just ended. The Winter Olympics just ended. And I don't know if you watched them, if you enjoy the Winter Olympics, if you really get into them, uh, or if you just uh, can't understand the rules of curling. That's where I fall. I, I know the U.S. men won a gold medal in curling. God bless them. I don't know how or why they won a gold medal, but they did, which is great. Uh, and if you think back, remember in 1980, the Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid, New York, and a young upstart group of college hockey players from the United States, some of you know this story, right? went in to Lake Placid and they had to face the uh, big, mean, scary, professional hockey group from where? Right, from the USSR, from the Soviet Union at the time. And so they played each other and uh, the Soviets were highly favored and the United States, of course, they, they played their hearts out. And at the end of that game, when they, they knew that the United States was going to win, the commentator, the famous sports commentator, Al Michaels, uh, very young at the time, the clock was ticking down, and he asked a question. He screams a question at the end of that clip, if you've ever seen it. And he asked this question, and he says, do you believe in miracles? You remember? Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And I want to ask you that same question this morning. Do you believe in miracles? Do you? Well, here's the second question. If something is going to happen, if miracles are going to happen, and by the way, I know that many people just audibly said yes, but I know that there's some people in the room that aren't so sure. I'm glad you're here. But uh, do miracles happen? Some of us say yes. I would say yes. The question I want us to think about this morning is, what has to come together in order for a miracle to happen? If, if something big is going to happen, uh, certain ingredients have to be there. Certain things have to come together. Like, we just got out of our second bomb cyclone of the year. 
I, I don't know, I, I must have not paid attention. I never even, I never heard this phrase before, but now we've had two of them this year. And I know for this to happen, because I watch the weather just like you do, we have to have systems coming from different places, and they all have to come together, and it has to be sort of the perfect moment, and then there has to be a, some sort of surge within the ocean that causes all this damage. And the damage, you know, that's happened over the, over the last couple of days, of course, is difficult and terrible, and I feel terrible for the people that have to clean up, but the reality of, of the event is that certain things have to come together in order for that event to take place. Certain ingredients have to come together in order for something big to take place. And that's true about a weather system. That's true about cooking food. That's true about putting together a building project. If something great is going to happen, certain ingredients have to come together for it all to take shape. And the question that I want you to, us to think about together this morning is what are the ingredients that have to come together in order for a miracle to take place? What sort of things have to happen? What needs to occur in order for a miracle to happen or take place? I think that for many of us, we would say quite simply, well, in order for a miracle to take place, God has to do something. There's one ingredient, and it's that God has to do something dramatic. That's, the, that's how a miracle takes place. And I think in some ways we're right. If a miracle is going to take place, God has to do something out of the ordinary. God has to move in a way that, that is unexpected or a way that goes against maybe the natural laws of the universe. God has to do something that has no other explanation other than the fact that God stepped in and made it happen. And I agree with that. In order for a miracle to take place, one ingredient is that God has to do something. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there's a second ingredient in order to create the environment in which God does something unusual and unordinary that many times we miss. We can say to ourselves and we can sit back and we can say, you know, if God's going to move, if God's going to do something, he'll do it. And really, the ingredient for a miracle is God just does something unbelievable. And yes, that's, I agree. That's one ingredient. But there's another piece, another ingredient that I think we can often miss and not necessarily pay attention to. My guess is if you're here this morning and you believe that God exists, you believe this book, you've entrusted your life to this, then you desire, I want to see this, you desire to see God do the miraculous. You would love to see it happen. And you would love to see it happen more than once in your lifetime. That God would do something great. God would do something that has no other explanation than that God stepped down and he did a work. We want to see that. And even if you're here this morning and you would say, uh, you would say this morning, you know, I, I'm not really sure if God exists. I'm not sure how God works. My guess is that you would say, if God exists, then he definitely should be the kind of God that can do miracles. Because what value is there in, in worshiping a God that can't do miracles? That is a very weak and powerless God. If God exists, you might be willing to say, at least he should be the, very, the kind of God that could step in and do something amazing, could step in and do something unbelievable. And for those of us that have already given our life to this, those of us that believe, we probably believe that God can do miracles. I believe that God can do miracles. And I want to see it happen. 
I want to see God do the unusual. I want to see God do the unexpected. I want to see God do the unbelievable. And one piece of a miracle is that if something great is going to happen, the miracle is going to happen, God's got to do something. But what we're going to see in Joshua chapter 3 this morning, as we look at a great miracle that God did among his people, is that God doing something great, and we see this not just in Joshua chapter 3, but in other places in the Bible as well. For God to do a miracle, for God to do something great, God doing it is just one ingredient. There's another one we have to think about. In Joshua chapter 3, and if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, I'm going to review quickly. In Joshua chapter 3, here's what happened. Here's what's happening. God's people, the Israelites, they were in slavery in Egypt. Many of you have heard this over the past couple of weeks. We're going to review it one more time. God's people were in slavery in Egypt. God sent Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. They did that. They left Egypt. They spent how many years in the desert and in the wilderness? Forty years, four decades, wandering around the wilderness. And now they have a new leader. His name is Joshua. That's where we get the name of the book that we're in. Joshua is the new leader that's leading God's people. And they have been encamped for a while now, uh, just on the east side of what is the Jordan River. And here's where we are in this story. It's been a long period of wandering for God's people. And for generations, God has promised his people that there was a land that he was going to give to them. And it's a land that lies, most of it, west of the Jordan. Remember, I just said God's people are encamped east of the Jordan. Much of this land lies on the other side of the Jordan. So that's the promise that God has given to his people. There is a promised land that is waiting for them to go and to take and to live in. But the God's people are on the east side of that Jordan River. So the people, they have their position. The people know God's promise on the other side of the river. But they have this problem. And that is, is that this river, the Jordan River, is sitting in between them and the promised land. And they need to figure out what they're going to do. They know that they're supposed to go to Jericho. That's the first place they're supposed to go, the first city they're supposed to go to. But they're encamped in a town called Shittim, and they're sitting there wondering, you know, how are we going to get from where we are to where God has told us to be when there is this Jordan River in between us? Now, you have to in some way try to appreciate, appreciate what's going on with the Israelites. This is not... 50 people that need to get across the river. This is hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people. Moms, dads, children. And then they have their livestock. This is, there's, there's no Whole Foods out here. There's no Whole Foods uh, shatim. They, they are growing what they eat. They have, they have livestock. God is providing manna, but they, but they have their flocks. They have their possessions. That all has to come with them. They all have to come together. And so you have this massive task of getting an entire nation of people that have been wandering around for 40 years from where they are to where they need to be. And what happens in this story, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a moment. What happens in this story is that the people gather themselves in their possessions and they walk up to the Jordan River. 
And God does his part of a miracle. God does something amazing. God parts the Jordan River, stops the river, the Bible says, at an ancient town called Adam, stops the Jordan River, and the people walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. And Once the people are across the river, the river fills back up. Now, I don't know, did anyone else, did anyone ever play the game Oregon Trail when you were growing up? I can't be the only one. You, Justin, you play the game Oregon Trail, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oregon Trail, thank you, Don. Don, Don is in. He has an Oregon Trail testimony if we want to hear it later. If, if, if Oregon Trail was a game, does, how about this? Do you remember the five and quarter inch floppy disks that we used to use on computers? Like the big black ones that you could wave around and you'd slide them in and close the thing. So Oregon Trail was on like eight of those disks. And what you would do is you would get to choose to be like a banker or a doctor or something. And you would start in Chicago and you were trying to travel with covered wagons and everything to, to, uh, to Oregon. And you would try to get there without, you know, it would get your family there and you have to hunt and do all this stuff. So inevitably in the game, you would come to a river and you would have to cross the river with your family and all your possessions. And you would get choices. And the game would say to you, do you want to cock the wagon and try to float across? Do you want to ford the river and just try to walk across with your oxen and everything? Or do you want to hire a Native American guide? Change the language. Do you want to hire a Native American guide? And those were your options. Well, I think it's important for us to, to notice here in, in the moment that the Israelites are coming up to this river. None of those are options. They can't just walk through it. The Jordan River is in flood stage, the Bible makes clear to us in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 15. It is overflowing its banks. That probably means that in the middle, it's somewhere between 10 and 12 feet deep. So just walking across it with a million people is not going to work. There's no way they can float everything they have across it. There's no one to build a bridge. There's no one to guide them across. This is standing between them and what God has promised them. And God does something unbelievable, parts the Jordan River, separates it, and lets them walk across on dry ground. Now you say, well, how would that happen? How would that happen? If you're, if you're like me, I have a lot of questions. My, my head gets in the way of my heart a lot. I have a lot of questions. How would that happen? Let me offer you, let me offer you one, one idea. A couple times throughout history, there have been earthquakes in that region, and debris and mud have fallen into the Jordan River and dammed it up for hours at a time. In fact, in, on July 11th, 1927, it's reported that there was an earthquake near the ancient city of Adam, and it was actually did a lot of damage in Jerusalem and surrounding cities. And debris and trees, this is a picture of it, debris and trees fell into the Jordan River, and the Jordan River stopped flowing for 21 hours. Now, that's a natural explanation of how the Jordan River might stop flowing. But here's the thing. In my opinion, the timing, the timing of a million of God's people walking up to the river at the exact moment that something like this would take place, something of which there's three times throughout history, once in the 1200s, once in the 1500s, and once in 1927, that something like this happened with the Jordan River. That the timing of the entire thing, in my opinion, is not coincidence. That is God at work allowing his people to cross the river. And so we look at that and we say, man, God is amazing and God is majestic and he is awesome and powerful and he controls the whole deal. And we look at our own lives and we look at God and we say, God, I wish you would do something like that in my life. I wish you would do something like that for me. How come I never have a Jordan River moment? 
How come whenever I walk up to the river, it just keeps flowing and I'm stuck? I want to suggest to you this morning that what we see in Joshua chapter 3 is that God doing something is just one part of what sets the environment for a miracle to happen. You see, what happens in Joshua chapter 3 verse 5 is Joshua starts going among the people, right? This is an exciting day. This is moving day. These people have been encamped in this town for weeks, and now Joshua is going through the camp, and the camp officers are going through the camp, we read, and they're telling the people, we're going. Get ready. Pack up your stuff. We're moving. And if you've just been sitting there waiting for your, for your leader to say it's finally time to go, you'd be excited too. And the people get up, and Joshua, in verse 5, look what he says. Joshua goes through the camp, and he says to the people, consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now Joshua is talking about you know, the, the, the Israelites ritually purifying themselves and getting ready for God. But here's the interesting piece. Why is it, if miracles are just God doing something, why is it that Joshua goes through the camp and tells all the people that they need to start doing something? If a miracle, if God's going to part this Jordan River, and he's told Joshua is going to do so, if God's going to part this Jordan River, why is it then that Joshua goes throughout the camp and says, listen, get ready, God's about to do something great. Get ready, consecrate yourself. Surrender yourself. Purify yourself. Get ready. God's going to do something great. Why would Joshua, if the only ingredient is God has to do something unbelievable, why would Joshua then go through the camp and tell all these people to start getting ready? Because the reality is that the, uh, for a miracle to occur, for a miracle to happen, there's more than one ingredient that has to come together. God moving is a huge part of it. But it's not just about God moving. you got to move too. And Joshua knew this. And so he got, went around the camp and he went to the people and he said, listen, start moving. Start moving. Get ready. Get ready. God's about to do something. Pack up your stuff. Consecrate yourself. Purify yourself. And let's start going. You see, there's two pieces if a miracle is going to occur in your life and my life. And we see it in this story here in Joshua chapter 3. The first is God's got to do something. God's got to move. But the second part is you got to move too. The people had to move. If the people are still encamped in Shittim and God parts the Jordan River, who's there to see it? If a tree falls in a forest, does it still make it sound? I don't know. If the people are still encamped in the town where they've been encamped for the last few weeks, who gets to see the miracle? Just God and maybe anyone else who's walking by. You see, the people had to start moving. And this is what they had to do. Look in verse 10 of chapter 3. We're going to read verse 10 through verse 17 and see exactly what the people did. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Those are some of the people groups living in the land that they're going to go into. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. 
So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heavy in a heap very far away at Adam, the city which is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Araba, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all, the, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan." God does something amazing here, stopping the waters of the Jordan so that his people can pass through. And not just 50 people, not just 100 people, hundreds of thousands of people pass through with all their possessions and all their livestock and everything that they needed. But here's the thing. God doing that amazing thing was not the only ingredient that needed to take place or come together in order for this great moment in the people of Israel to ha- for the people of Israel to happen. The people had to do something too. And the first thing the people had to do was the people had to stand firmly on God's promises and God's presence. The people had to stand firmly on God's promises and on God's presence. God had given them instructions and Joshua was Very clear on what God's instructions were. And these were the instructions God had given him. Take the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is, is, uh, some of you know about what the Ark is, but the Ark of the Covenant, I'll just say briefly, represented for the people God's dynamic presence within their midst. The Ark of the Covenant was the representation of God's dynamic presence within their midst. And so Joshua says, here's how this is going to happen. This is how God said it's got to happen. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go first. And if you were to look in earlier in chapter 3, you'd read all these instructions. The Ark is going first. God's presence is going before us. All the rest of us, we're going to stay about 1,000 yards behind it. 2,000 cubits, about 1,000 yards behind And when that ark, when the priests that are carrying the ark, when their feet touch the water, the water is going to part. But we're going to do this thing the way that God has asked us to do it. We're going to do it following his presence. We're going to do it standing on his promises. Because God has promised us that this land is ours. God has promised us that he is going to be with us. God has promised he's going to part this river for us. So we're going to stand on those promises and and in his presence. It's the first thing the people had to do. The people had no idea how God was going to do this. I mean, put yourself in that place. They're just like us. They're people. They're regular people. And their leader comes to them and says, we're going to walk and the Ark of the Covenant is going to go before us and the priest's feet are going to go into the water and God's going to part the water. And I'm sure, I don't think they had a Q&A, but my guess is if they, the reason they didn't is because hands would have been up everywhere. Are you sure about this, Joshua? How is this possibly going to happen? These are people just like you and me. I'd have some questions. I bet you would too. We got a nice camp here. Are you sure it's worth today breaking down camp and making this movement? How do you know this is the right day? How do you know that we're supposed to go? But Joshua stood firm on the promises and the presence of God, and so did the people, even though they probably had some questions, enough to go ahead and move forward. 
And so not only did they stand on the promises in the presence of God, but the second thing that they did is they stepped forward in obedience. They stepped forward in obedience. They stood on the promises and presence of God, but they stepped forward in obedience. They broke down camp, packed up all their stuff, and they started walking. And they got to the edge of the Jordan and they waited there for another three days. And then once it was time, they watched as the priest went out with the ark and stepped into the water. Here's the thing they had to do, and this is what faith looks like. The priests or the people had to step forward in obedience without all the details laid out for them. I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of person that I like to know how things are going to work. If we're going to go somewhere, if we're going to do something, we're going to take some giant risk, I'd like to know for sure how it's all going to play out. I'd like to see the budget. I'd like to see the plan. I'd like to see all the details in place. I'd like to minimize risk as much as we can. I'd like to know that everything's going to happen the way it should happen. And then when I feel like all the details are in a row, uh, then I will go forward and I'll step out. That's not what the people do here. The people know the promises of God, and so they leave up the results of everything to him, and they just take the next logical step forward. God told Joshua he's going to part the Jordan River. Joshua told us God's going to do wonders among us. The next logical step then is for us to move forward. How is God going to do it? I don't know. That's up to him. He promised it. How is God going to make this happen? I don't know. He promised he would do it. And the people start moving forward. They start taking steps of obedience, even though they're not 100% sure how it's all going to work out. And that's what faith looks like sometimes, trusting the promise and the presence of God and being willing to take steps forward in obedience, even though I don't know how it's all going to work out. You see, when it comes to miracles and miraculous things, there's two mistakes that we make. There's two mistakes that we can make. And one of them, I think, is made by those of us who like to use our head more than our hearts. And the other one is made by us that like to use our hearts more than our head. And the first mistake that we make is we can look at a miracle and we can say, listen, miracles are up to God. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that's all powerful. He's the one that does them. And so it's not up to me. We'll just sit back and wait. If God wants to do it, he'll do it. We'll, we'll ask him sometimes for them. But if God wants to do it, he'll do it. It's not up to me. It's up to him. And so we just sit back and we let God decide if he's going to do one or not. But the second mistake we can make is the opposite of that. And for those of us who usually lead with our hearts and our emotions, we're, I think, susceptible to this mistake. And that is to say, if God's not doing a miracle, something's wrong with me. If God's not doing a miracle, then my faith isn't enough. And, and, and this is the one that, that you turn on the TV and the internet. This is the one that get preached at you. And I'm telling you, it's not, it's not entirely biblical. If God's not doing a miracle, then there must be something wrong with me. I could give you the message this morning. I could come up here and I could preach this message. I could say to you this morning, if you have a Jordan River in your life and God's not parting it, you better step into that river because God's going to part it for you. And you've heard that sermon if you've been in church world. I could tell you this morning that if you, if, if, if you want a miracle, that you got to have more faith. If you want a miracle, then you got to pray harder. If you want a miracle, something's wrong with you. And if we're not careful, we can make the opposite mistake. The first one, we say, listen, something's wrong with God. He's the one in charge, and if he's not doing miracles, I don't know why he's not doing miracles. It's really entirely up to him. But the other mistake is the opposite of that. 
That if God's not doing a miracle, it's all on me. That I must be doing something wrong. I'm not praying hard enough. I'm not believing hard enough. I don't have enough faith. And neither one is a healthy understanding of what a miracle looks like or what the ingredients are for God to work. Time and time again throughout the Bible, we could find a few places where God moves on his own. But time and time again in the Bible, the vast majority of things we see happen are the miracles that come together are because God does something great and the people of God stand on his promises and move forward in faith. In fact, when Jesus is walking on this earth, this is how many of his miracles look. I'll give you one example. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is walking down the road and he sees there's a blind man named Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. And he starts to call out as Jesus walks past, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him and stops. He walks up to this blind man on the side of the road. And he doesn't heal him, at least not right away. He looks at Bartimaeus and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man, Bartimaeus, says back to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. You think Jesus didn't know that that's what he wanted? You think Jesus didn't really know what this man wanted, why this man would be calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He sees the man, the beggar on the side of the road, clearly blind, clearly needs this sight restored to him. But Jesus doesn't just walk up to him and do it. Jesus wants to see the man exhibit some sort of faith in him. To understand what he can about the promises and the presence of God in front of him and take some sort of step of obedience. And so he says to the man, what do you want me to do? And blind Bartimaeus says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. What made Bartimaeus well? His faith. The coming together of the mighty, powerful, miraculous act of God and the faith of someone willing to stand on the promises of God and step forward in obedience, even though he wasn't sure exactly how it was going to turn out. There's another time in Jesus' ministry where he goes to his hometown and doesn't do many miracles. And do you know why? Because the people didn't have faith. He could, still could have done them. But very clearly, we read that the reason he didn't do many miracles in his hometown is because the people didn't have faith. The greatest miracle you can receive and the greatest miracle I can receive is to have our hearts regenerated and renewed and restored by the power of God that comes through trusting in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. That is by far the greatest miracle that I can receive and that you can receive. You know how that miracle takes place? God does something miraculous through the death and resurrection of his son, but I have to step forward in obedience and surrender my life to him and put my faith and my trust in him in order for that miracle to take place. The two ingredients have to come. Come together. 
And I think many of us say to ourselves, I'd love to see a miracle. I'd love to see God do something great, but, but I'm not really sure how to make that happen, or I'm not really sure what that is, or I'm not sure exactly how that takes place. This is a question I would ask you this morning. Are you standing on the promises and the presence of God in your life? Are you? Because I believe that God is ready to move in our world. I believe that God is ready and willing to move in our world. And one of the commentaries that I read this week said, one of the reasons we hear about miracles in other parts of the world and we don't hear about them in the Western world is not because God doesn't do things here. It's because we are not the ones who are willing to respond in faith to the promises in the presence of God. And I, I think there's something to that. It's not that God is not willing to move and God is not willing to work. We have to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves, am I living my life on the promises and presence of God? Am I doing that? I can't control what God chooses to do or not chooses to do. I don't know why sometimes he parts the Jordan River and why sometimes he doesn't. And you got to keep in mind when people are preaching a passage like this, God parted the Jordan River miraculously one time. One time. So I don't know why he does it sometimes and doesn't do it other times, but I can't control that. What I need to look at is my own life and say, am I standing firm on the promises and presence of God? And am I, when I understand what God wants me to do, when I get the instruction from God, am I willing to step forward in obedience even when I'm not sure how it's going to work out? That's what I can control. And if you're going to see God do anything miraculous in your life, if I'm going to see God do anything miraculous in my life, if we as the people of God, as this community, are going to see God do anything miraculous among us, then we have to be willing not just to know that he can do it because he can, but we have to be willing to stand together on the promises and in the presence of God and be willing to step forward in obedience even when we have no idea how it's going to work out. For nothing else than that God has promised us something and that his presence goes with us. And I, I can tell you that I'm sure there have been times in my life where God told me to do something, but because I couldn't figure out how it was going to happen, I was too afraid to take that step. But the times that God has told me to do something and I've been able to have the strength and the faith to trust in his promise and presence and go out and take that step, God has done his greatest work in my life. A number of decades ago, there was a man named Rees Howell. He was a missionary from England. He was actually born in Wales and was sent out as a missionary from England uh, to Africa. And in the 1920s, he was sent out with his wife, and they were going to go to Africa. And the missionary society that was sending them gave them just enough money to buy train tickets from their home to London, England, where they were going to board a ship that was going to then take them uh, the rest of their way. What Reese Howell and his wife didn't tell all the well-wishers that gathered in their hometown to send them off, what they couldn't tell them is that they had to use some of that train money to go and buy supplies for Africa. 
They didn't have anything to go uh, with them on their journey. And so they had to use some of the train money that the missionary society had given them uh, to go and buy supplies for the trip to Africa. So they only had enough money in their pocket to make it one stop away, just about 20 miles from their home to a town called uh, Lanely, uh, England. That's the only way they could go. And they had to go there anyway to transfer trains to London. And so Reese Howell says he went up to the window and he bought the train tickets to the next stop knowing they had to transfer there and had no idea what in the world they were going to do. And here was the really embarrassing part. A lot of their friends and family were coming with them to that first stop. And they all thought he had plenty of money to make the train to London. So he said he bought his tickets to one stop and they took the stop, they took the train, and the whole train car was filled with their well-wishers, and they were singing songs, he said, and they were praising God, and the whole time he's sitting in the train going, we're going to be stuck, we're going to be stuck one stop from home, we're never getting to Africa. And so he got to the next train station, and he prayed, and he said, God, what do you want me to do? And God said to him, what would you do if you had the money? He said, well, I'd go stand in the ticket line. And God said to Reese Howell, go stand in the ticket line. And he said there was a voice that came to him that said, you are just going to be embarrassed. You're going to stand in that ticket line. A teller is going to call you to their window, and you're just going to have to turn around and walk away. Because you don't have the money to buy a train ticket to London. And he said, he said to the voice in that moment, listen, I know I'm stuck. I know I'm up against it, but Mo- God parted the Red Sea for Moses. I believe he's going to do it for me. And he went and he got in that line. And he was about 30 people deep in the line. And over the course of time, the line moved very slowly. And he got closer and closer and closer. And about two or three people in front of him, there was a man that was getting agitated at the length uh, that it was taking to get to the window to buy train tickets. And Reese Howell was looking and he's there. He's two people left in front of him. And finally, the man who was standing in front of him couldn't take it anymore. And he said out loud to anyone who would listen, this is ridiculous. I have to go open my shop. And he turned around and he put 30 shillings in Reese Howell's hand. And he said, here, you do something with it. And the teller called Reese Howell. He bought two train tickets to London. And him and his wife rejoiced the entire way. And you know what he says in his book, Intercessor, or the book that was written about him? He said, you know what? After God gave me those 30 shillings and I bought those train tickets, all our friends and family came up to us that had traveled with us to that first stop and gave us gifts for our work in Africa. But God wasn't going to give us that peace until we were willing to stand in line. All those people thought they had plenty of money to get to London. God was never going to give them that peace until they were willing to stand in line. And here's the thing that I think is so true about you and me. We know God's promising us something. We know God wants to do something in our lives. We know that God wants to move, but we are not willing to stand in line because we don't know how we're going to pay for the ticket when we get to the window. And so my question for you this morning is, are you the kind of person who is willing to get up and stand in line when God promises you something and tells you to do it, even though you're not sure how it's all going to work out? Are you willing to get up there and risk the finances? Are you willing to get up there and risk the respect and admiration of your family and friends? Are you willing to get up there and are you willing to risk whatever it is that God's calling you to risk because he's promising to do something through you if you will just be willing to get up and get in line? If you want to see a miracle in life, God's got 
got to do something. That is true, but you have to do something too. God's got to move, and I have to move. God has to move, and I have to be willing to listen to him, stand on his promise and presence, and take steps forward in obedience, even if I'm not sure how it's all going to work out. And I bet you any testimony we could pull up here this morning about a miracle has both those ingredients. That God did something great, but the person moved in obedience. So I don't know what you're walking through this morning. I don't know where you need God to move in your life. My question for you this morning is not, is our God powerful enough to do miracles? He 100% absolutely is. My question for you and me this morning is, are you willing to take steps forward in obedience, even if you're not sure how it's all going to work out? Are you willing to listen to the promises of God? Are you willing to follow his presence and do what he's asking you to do? That's where miracles happen. When God's power and our obedience come together. How do you know what God wants you to do? How do you know what his promises are? If you don't know what God wants you to do and you don't know what the promises of God are, you need to be in this book. You need to open this book. Read it. Understand who this God is. You can look in the clouds. You can look everywhere else all you want. But this is where God speaks most. You want to know what God's promises are? You want to experience his presence? Open up this book and read. God will tell you what to do by his spirit. And then you can step forward in obedience. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward as we close this morning. And as we do, I just invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. And maybe you're here this morning and maybe you're thinking, uh, you're hearing me go on and on about miracles and ranting and raving. And you're in a place this morning where you're just not even sure that that's even possible. You're not even sure that a God exists in this universe that would even do something like that. And so you have all these questions about this. I want to tell you this morning that there is a God who loves you. There is a God who wants to do amazing things in your heart and in your life if you will trust and follow him. There is a God, and it's the same God who parted the Jordan waters in Joshua chapter 3. The same God who healed the eyesight of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10. Who wants to do amazing things in your heart and in your life. If you would take a step of obedience this morning, And put your trust in him. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have never done that before. And maybe you're saying to me, I don't even understand what that fully means. I don't understand how it all works out. That's whole part of the deal with faith. We just take the next logical step forward in obedience. And maybe you can't explain it all this morning. Maybe you don't know how it all works out. But the next logical step of obedience for you, and you know this is true, is to put your trust and your hope and your faith in God himself and in Jesus Christ. If that's you, all you have to do is tell God that you're in that place in your own heart and your own mind. Speak to him and say, God, I don't know how it all works out and I'm not sure of all the details, but I believe that you are real. And I believe that your son came and died on the cross and was raised again for me. And I want to follow you and have you take control of my life. 
And if you do that, God will do the greatest work, the greatest miraculous work that he does, and that is he will redeem you and restore you and restore a relationship between you and God, not only here in this moment today, but one that will last for eternity. And maybe you're in a place this morning where you trust God and you believe in him and you know God can do great things. You know he can do the miraculous, but you're in this place of struggle because the diagnosis the doctor gave you is real and the financial situation you're in is real and you need God to move and you need God to do something great. I can't tell you this morning why God sometimes does things and sometimes he doesn't do things. That's up to God. He's the one in control. I know that he has the power to do them. All I would ask you this morning is to take a look at your own heart and on your own life. And if you're in that position where God needs to move in your life, we all need that in our lives. Are you the kind of person, are you right now walking and standing on the promises and in the presence of God? Is God to asking you to do something and are you doing it? Are you taking steps forward in obedience even though you're not sure how it's all going to turn out? Are you taking steps forward in faith and leaving the results up to the God who gave you the promise? Or are you waiting? Are you sitting on that bench in that train station platform waiting for someone to come give you some money before you get in line? Are you the kind of person that's turning away and just walking out of the train station in direct disobedience to God, saying, God, listen, I'll go figure this out on my own. I know how you call me to handle relationships. I know how you call me to handle money. I know how you call me to handle all these things, but I'm just gonna go do it on my own because I'm not sure how you're gonna get it done. My friend, if you want God to do the miraculous in your life, you gotta go get in line. Do what it is he's telling you to do. Leave the results up to him. So God, this morning we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you will help us to be those kinds of people like the Israelites who were willing to move even though they weren't sure how it's going to happen, like Joshua who was willing to call the people and get them in motion even though he was not sure how it was all going to turn out. Like blind Bartimaeus who called out to Jesus and knew exactly what he wanted you to do, trusted you that you could do it. Like Reese Howell, who was willing to stand in line, God, make us those kind of people. Lord, we want to see you do the miraculous among us. We want to see you do things that we cannot do on our own. We want to see you do amazing things in our lives and have great testimonies of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. But God, help us to be the kind of people that are willing to take steps of faith that you call us to. We'll trust you with the rest. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at 
mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at M-T Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.